So tonight I'd like to talk about the long-range view of our practice here and the foundations that keep us uh, stabilized on the path, that give us a lot of strength on the path through our life. I think as many of you have already realized through our practice, we begin more and more to see in profound ways the reality of our lives beneath the busyness of it all. We begin to see underneath the conceptual level of our everyday uh, life and how we can see underneath how it's quite different from how we think it is on a day-to-day level. Through our practice, we begin to bring a more balanced, caring, spacious awareness to our moment-to-moment experiences, to the activities of our day. We do this so the mind and heart can unfold where it's folded in upon itself, as uh, Anushka was explaining so beautifully the other night. This begins to reveal what has long been unrealized, what we haven't seen from uh, time immemorial, ways of looking at life that have caused us a lot of confusion, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. We begin to experience the true nature of this unfolding life. And we learn along the way how important it is to have that gentle, persevering effort that's precise and clear at the same time to continually electrify that thread of mindfulness that we're carrying along with us in our practice, in our lives. Each one of us knows in our own ways how much courage and compassion it takes to face what we have to face when this inner world gets revealed to us. We have to bring a real sobering honesty to what's going on. We begin to open to what is actually being experienced instead of living in our hopes and dreams of our life. We do this even when it's hard to bear. So when this happens, when we face our moment-to-moment life this way, the path of practice begins to reveal itself to us and it can be easily seen. The Buddha said, develop what is wholesome, develop what is skillful. Let go of what is unwholesome, let go of what is unskillful. This is the basic foundation of our practice. We're developing what is wholesome by doing our metta practice, for example. There are many other practices, but metta is one of them. The other brahma-viharas, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, when we practice those, are part of developing the wholesome. We actually develop the wholesome when we remind ourselves about the precepts that we take every morning to refrain from doing harm to others and, of course, That also does harm to our own hearts. We let go of what is unwholesome, what is unskillful, through the precepts as well. We let go of what might cause harm, and we incline the mind towards harmony. It happens very naturally when we do the vipassana practice. 
very naturally in Vipassana practice, the mind can see what's dangerous and lets go of that. So for most of us, this happens very gradually in ever-deepening ways. And with these two as a basis, developing the wholesome, letting go of the unwholesome, we learn we can truly rely on these uh, places of understanding for ourselves. We learn to have more faith in these very simple ways of living our lives. We learn to come back to that over and over again so that no matter what stones are thrown in the ponds of our minds, our hearts, our lives, we know eventually, maybe more and more quickly, it can come back to a place of inner peace, inner calm, some clarity with which to face life. Tonight I want to talk about how our practice produces the refinements of happiness, peace in our lives. Not from acquiring anything special or even spiritual, but actually from the practice of letting go. This practice that we're taking up is often called the practice of purification, the path of letting go. We're purifying the mind and heart of clinging, of attachment, of all the desires that lead to unhappiness and suffering for ourselves and others, of ill will, of all the ways it pushes back, cruelty towards others, towards ourselves, ways of closing down, ways of turning away. We're purifying the mind and heart of ignorance and delusion, which was spoken of quite a bit during this retreat. So this is a path with immediate and far-reaching benefits. And the far-reaching benefits are benefits beyond sometimes what our mind can actually even imagine in the conceptual experience of reality, in the conditioned experience, experience of reality. It's, it's beyond all conditions. So I'd like to lay all that out to you. Um, and of course, they'll, it'll each be... Um, short areas of of filling it out because uh, each one in and of itself can be a full one Dharma talk, if not more than that. So in our practice, in time, we weaken the tendencies that are harmful. They eventually die out. The greed, hatred, and delusion eventually is uprooted from the mind stream. They don't just become weak they can become totally uprooted. So even the tendency for that greed, hatred, and delusion doesn't arise. The mind can be filled totally with non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, and be, uh, per- work perfectly well in this life. This has a great effect uh, on our lives, of course, though it's gradual. And we have, when we see this, Uh, Many of you have been practicing as long as we have up here. And you see that in your life, through your practice, the tendencies for uh, harming uh, others and ourselves are much more weakened. We don't feel that. We might feel something come up, but we, we don't act on it. Or sometimes it comes up very, very lightly. And we see how weak those tendencies can be. There's a spontaneous understanding in ourselves that we can really trust the Dharma. And so we keep going, even though it's difficult. 
we keep going on the path. And of course, this deepening in us, this deepening trust in the Dharma, in non-harming, in opening our hearts and connecting with others, in seeing more clearly and more swiftly what causes harm and refraining from that, that, of course, has a deep effect on those around us. Sogyal Rinpoche, a great Tibetan teacher, says, The practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart because it dissolves and removes the unkindness or the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful to others. When I first started practicing, like all of you, I was searching for some peace, some greater peace in my life, because I just realized at some level, at a very gross level indeed, that there was a lot of disharmony, a lot of dukkha, suffering in my life, and all around. I wanted something that I could rely on day to day, some place where I could find some calm, even if it was a few moments in the day. I wanted to understand life more deeply and understand it in a way that um, I could be with suffering and not react to it. So this happened very early in my life, as it had for many of you. And uh, when I was in my 20s, I was a single parent of three children. They were all under the age of five or six. Now that, that's dukkha. (laughs) I got to one of my first um, retreats by going to one of those spiritual fairs in in California in the hippie days. And um, I had just arrived from the Philippines with my three children. And I was starting a life all on my own with them. And there was this um, sign that said, you know, there, there's a spiritual fair going on at the University of California in Santa Cruz. When I was driving down Highway 1, I saw the sign. So I followed the signs to it and I went. And I drove in with my three clamoring children who were very hungry and restless. And they, they didn't like the kind of things I went to, of course. They wanted to do their own thing. And there was this... The biggest exposition was held in this huge gymnasium. It was um, as hu- twice or three times as huge as what we're in right now. And my kids were all pulling on me. You know, I want to go home. I don't like this hippie stuff. And, you know, there was, it, was, it was wonderful for me. You know, there was music and there was some dancing. You heard some flute playing. There was some incense burning. And it was a little time of calm and peace for myself, too, even amongst the clamoring of the children. And I didn't have much time, so I just stood at the doorway and I, and I glanced around, and way at the far end there was a sign that said, Silent Retreat. And I just went right for that. I didn't go to anything else. I went right there and I said, This is what I want. I'm interested in this. And they were, they were advertising a weekend retreat somewhere in San Jose. So they were very kind, and I signed up for it. And um, there were very nice women that I could trust right away. And they said they would take care, find a way to take care of my children. So I went to that. And 
Because of that retreat, I met up with Manindraji, our first teacher, my first teacher in the Dharma, and teachers that uh, we've had, a teacher that we've had. He was a a very spontaneously uh, allowed the Dharma to come from him in any in any situation in any way, and it was said of him, and we've all experienced that you couldn't really stop him until the last person in the room left. He would just keep on going. (laughs) And uh, so he was just a wonderful first teacher for all of us. And he continued to be my teacher. He made it clear to me in the very beginning when he asked me, well, what do you want out of the Dharma? And I told him. And he said that, you know, you can... You can have all of those beautiful things that you aspire to, a calm heart and mind. Um, maybe there are times I thought I heard of these very blissful experiences that people had doing. I didn't know much about how it went, but it was doing uh, jhana practice, very high blissful experiences. And I said, maybe even that too. And he said, there, it's all beautiful what you want. You know, I wanted a more virtuous heart. And he said, that's all beautiful. Also, one can experience all of that. It's all part of the path. But it isn't the ultimate aim of the Buddha's path. He said, the ultimate aim of the path is understanding first that there is a possibility to realize unconditional peace and happiness. Not a peace and happiness that's conditioned upon things being just right for us on in this life that we're living. Um, It's a peace that's much beyond that, that's really ineffable, hard to understand with the kind of mind that that, uh, you have now. But in time, you can begin to understand how with more and more purification of the mind, it can go to deeper and deeper levels of understanding, deeper and deeper experiences of the purity of one's own heart and mind. And he pointed me to, um, indirectly, to the sure heart's release, the words of the Buddha that come from the middle-length discourses, which state the very reason for the teachings offered by the Buddha. And we often forget this in our in our Dharma lives even, that there's something beyond all the things we hope and wish for in even this Dharma life. So I just want to uh, remind myself in all of this of, of the purpose of the holy life. And these are the words of the Buddha. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for attaining states of concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. And what the Buddha was meaning there, according to the explanation that Munindraji had given me during that time, the sure heart's release meanings the complete elimination and freedom from all the defilements and the experience of a heart that's completely pure. And so from the very beginning, I 
he had told me stories of people in his life, lay people like myself, that had understood this and realized this. And so from the very beginning, this was absolutely clear to me that this is why I'm doing the practice. Not for anything in between, although all those places are beautiful and worthy of all of our practice, but for that sure heart's release. And I've never forgotten that. That's been a clear aspiration in my practice from the very beginning. So when I asked Manindraji, is it possible for me, right away, of course, he said, sure, why not? You know, So that's the kind of attitude I, I entered it, the Dhamma with, into the Dhamma with, that, okay, that's for me too. And um, there were, I made no bones about it. So Manindraji used to say, there are three areas of your life that you can bring this careful, mindful attention to. And those three areas of your life will lay the foundation for this sure heart's release, for this complete uh, liberation. And he wanted to lay out those um, three foundations, which he called, this is his terminology for it, the three pillars of the Dhamma three pillars of the Dhamma. That was his framework. So in short, I'd like to speak about those three pillars this evening because it presents the first step and the last step, in a way, of the teachings of the Buddha. And these are steps and foundations, actually, that we need to continually practice. Even after one is so-called liberated, we still need to keep on uh, practicing Mindfulness of generosity. This is the first pillar of the Dhamma. The second one is mindfulness of living in harmony. This is the practice of sila. The first one is dana, generosity. And the second one is sila, living in harmony. And the third one is uh, the mindful training of the development of two things, concentration and wisdom. So this third pillar is the pillar of bhavana. Bhavana means bringing forth what has not yet been developed. And so when we do our practice here in in our sitting practice and even in our walking practice, we're practicing some form of concentration, even if it's moment-to-moment concentration in our sitting and walking here. And then uh, we're also practicing and un, un, we're realizing wisdom through this practice. All of these are mindfulness practices. The practice of dana, the practice of sila, the practice of bhavana, they're all mindfulness practices. The simplicity of giving careful attention to establishing the strength in each pillar is really what we need to do in the complete view of our Dhamma life. It's interesting, you know, when the Dhamma came to the West, it came into a society of very, of course, intelligent people, people that were interested in the mind. And so we practiced a lot in the beginning, uh, this practice of bhavana. Everybody was interested in meditation, of course. And so uh, the understanding of sila and Donna didn't get as much airtime. 
And, and in a way, I think it still doesn't get as much airtime as it needs in, in, in the, the practice and understanding of the Dhamma. Manindra used to say, if you can practice these three pillars all throughout your life, even through the various levels of purification, you'll have a reliable base, uh, some great security for your life. You'll feel very... You, you'll have this kind of unshakability in your understanding of the full view of the Dhamma. It's easy to understand if we practiced in, in this way that we need to retrain the patterns, the habit patterns that have been kind of unconsciously developed through our lives. And we need to retrain our lives to, um, to have more wholesome thoughts, as Anishka was talking about the other day, and to, to let go more. And this happens through the practice of renouncing what leads to harm. It also happens through the practice of generosity, when we learn to give more of ourselves. The practices of dana and sila bring a lot of happiness and happiness is a really important uh, foundation, and it's a, it's an important place in our lives as well. When we're when we give of ourselves, when we know that we're not harming others or ourselves in our lives, we have this great sense of well-being in us. When our mind is not plagued by regret, when we remember acts of generosity, of letting go when we don't have feelings of blame uh, or unworthiness in our hearts, we feel um, that happiness that is a condition, a great condition for calmness and a sense of settledness in ourselves. This is from um, the Dzogchen teachings, the Tibetan teachings, The Heart of Great Perfection. Now in our day-to-day lives, we know that the more calm and stable and contented the mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from that. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative the mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can only see too well that a disciplined and contented mind is the source of our happiness. But we can see when we're sitting that it, it doesn't, uh, it needs training. The mind needs training. <laughs> Somebody asked in a group, you know, well, why are we doing, why is this called a training? Um, isn't it obvious to you by now why, why we need to do this? So when the Buddha offered the teachings, um, he would often begin with these foundations, the foundations of the holy life, beginning with dana or giving, and then he went on to sila, or a life of living in harmony. And I was just reading today from Bhikkhu Bodhi, that, who's a, a well-known in, in the circles of the Dharma, as a, as a great translator of the, um, the scriptures uh, that were handed down to us from time immemorial, and a great teacher to many of us, that he said, the Buddha didn't go on to teaching the Four Noble Truths, until he felt that dana and sila were adequately covered to that group of people. 
So, Donna, the first one. There can be a really long talk about Donna, but I'm just putting it in, in its basic understanding. Donna has two aims. The first aim is benefiting or helping others. And the second aim is benefiting ourselves. But we don't often think of the second aim when we, um, or the, in, in a way we can look at it as a more long-range uh, aim that we might have for ourselves. But we also feel the benefit to ourselves in the moment of giving. So I just want to give some examples of that. Um, when we give others, when we help others, of course we give of ourselves. We give of our time. We give of our energy. We give of our kindness. We give of our material resources. And of course it relieves others of their suffering, of their either their momentary hardship or their hardship you know that we we might see in our children that the hardship they may be facing so we try to help them now for their for future times when we give to in this way it inspires in them a sense of worthiness and this is something i've often seen that i'm giving and it's something kind of below the surface of things that when i can give something of myself to another person and that person feels worthy of being given to. That's a great gift that we give to others when they feel like, oh, I'm worthy of of Kamala's time or the time she took to write a note or um, to give a gift or to just to show some compassion and a moment of listening and not saying anything. It tells them that you are a worthy person. And a lot of people need to feel that. And I need to feel that too in my own life. And so we're giving them such a great gift. A lot of people have a hard time giving because they don't feel a sense of inner richness, don't feel like they can give anything of themselves. And that's why people kind of feel closed and have this sort of attitude of, of inner poverty sometimes because they don't have that sense of inner richness. And actually we can give that to them by our giving of anything to them. It makes them feel loved, not just know it in their heads. Of course I'm loved. My mother loved me. You know, my, my children love me most of the time. Uh, <laughs> But we, it really feels, makes them feel loved because of that connection, that really kind connection. It, it makes them realize that someone recognizes the beauty of their life, the beauty of their hearts. The Buddha would share um, anything um, of, of what he had, it said, to all beings. Uh, what, whoever he could share, of course, he shared the Dhamma, which is his greatest gift, living 2,600 years later, even after his life. The Buddha said, It is meritorious even to throw, when you throw away water after washing your dish, to have a generous thought that the food particles may feed the beings in the ground. I mean, he even thought to that degree. 
And um, he said, if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it with others. So I know Joseph and I have had this experience with Manindra. You know, we'd offer him a meal, and I, probably Joseph has had similar experiences, but I could tell you mine. We'd offer him a meal. He'd be sitting down at the table. The, me- the food he had on his plate was already given to him, so it was his. And then he would like to share that food with someone else. And he wants to share it directly. So he'd peel the banana, he'd break a part off, and he'd put it right in my mouth. <laughs> Very directly. And at first I thought... You know, what are you doing? <laughs> and, and I realized later that, you know, that direct gift to be really present, give it with your own hands, he taught me later. To, it's important when you can to give a gift with your own hands, something that is rightly acquired, you know, that the purity of the gift, the purity of the giver, he was giving with full generosity of his own heart and the purity of the receiver as much as possible. So to actually give in that way really instills that sense in the giver of the the laws of cause and effect. It feels, it really has an impact on one's mind and heart. So it it really helps that person remember giving, the act of giving. He would even share his food. He would leave a little bit of food and share it with the cat and the dog in our house. I would ask him, "Are you, Manindraji, were you lonesome today? Sometimes I would leave the food for him to, to eat because I'd have to go to work. And I'd come home and I'd say, were you lonesome today? He said, oh no, I was not lonesome. There was a dog and the cat is there. And I shared my food with them at the end, you know. And then also he would leave a little food for the ants and, and the roaches. He, he really followed this um, admonition of the Buddha to the tea. You know, he would wash his plate maybe and leave it. And he, he would even say, I left food for the, the insects. And there was a lot of cockroaches in our house during that time. <laughs> so of course, you know, when he gave the Dhamma, he would even give it on his sickbed. You know, when, when he couldn't do much, when he was laying down after some surgery, he would still offer the Dhamma. He would give a Dhamma teaching, something. He would say a, a blessing, a, a, a protection chant in the morning or in the evening. So giving of our time, our energy, our presence in support of others, uh, not only giving of our material resources, something that we really need to pay attention to when we take this practice home. Here on retreat, so many have supported us, people that are in our lives supporting us to be here, our, our colleagues, our family, our partners, our children, and, um, and people here on retreat, the cooks, the, the managers, all those in the background, those who took our registration, uh, many, many. So it nourishes our hearts. It, it makes us feel happy. And it also, um, you know, it, it gives us a strength. The, the, 
when we're, when we're given to it, gives us a strength to continue our path. So it helps others. It helps the person, the people that you're giving to. So at one time, Manindra said to me, because I was help giving him some support, he said, do you want to understand dana more deeply? Do you want to understand how it actually helps you in your life? How it can lead ultimately to final liberation for yourself? So this, in this way, you can understand dana with wisdom, not just on the everyday level, but on a, in a deeper level. So he said that uh, dana is supporting a deep well-being in ourselves because when we give in that way, we feel connected with all of life. So we have this very deep feeling of connection and protection with all of life. When we give, there are wholesome states of mind present when we truly give because there's a feeling of love there, a feeling of kindness and goodwill. Sometimes there's a feeling of compassion when we see the, the suffering of others. Sometimes we give when there's no suffering, but because we just want to give. Sometimes we see the suffering in others, and there's compassion there. When we give, there's uh, joy in our own hearts. Uh, because when you really look deeply, it's completely surrounded by joy. Just to have the thought of giving, you'll see joy in your heart. And when you give, in the actual act of giving, you'll feel joy in your heart. And afterwards, when you think of the time when you gave, you'll, you'll remember and feel that joy once again. It's a beautiful act, just completely surrounded by joy. And there's a sense of equanimity. One of our teachers, Seda Upandita, says... To let go of, of what you have, of your possessions, of even your time, your energy, there must be an ability to let go, equanimity there. Of course, it's the opposite of holding on. And um, it's, it, it really is developing that ability to let go. I've often reflected on, on a... On a on a moment of giving, and I see that it's so true, you know, how much well-being it brings to my heart, how much, um, when I even just see the happiness it brings to others, it can be something very small. Uh, Usually when we go to Burma, we offer a meal, and to all the yogis that are practicing there. And the the way it goes in, in Burma is that when you offer a meal, it's nothing to to have a secret about you know it's something that you you let everybody know your happiness in giving and so on the side of the dining hall all the donors or maybe there's just one family at that meal or that day they stand there on the side and they watch the meal being offered to everybody and then we do a chant and we give thanks to uh, all the donors and and then in the end we say sadhu, 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 well done, well done, well done to the donors. And um, they're on the side, you know, they're so happy. They got this smile from ear to ear on their face that they're feeding people who are doing the practice. And sometimes they'll even come to you with a bowl and they'll offer you directly the, the bowl. And you, you, it, it's impolite to say no. You know, you must take the food to complete 
their generosity. So even thinking of that gives me a lot of joy. And then usually before or afterwards, we go visit our teacher, Seda Upandita, and he gives us a talk on the benefits of giving. And um, just to give you a, a short view of that, he says, when one gives, one bestows upon another life, beauty, happiness, strength, intelligence. Having bestowed this beauty upon others, one becomes the beneficiary of the same. So, you know, one's, one's life becomes a, a life of well-being with um, happiness, strength. Also, there's wealth. There's a timely fulfillment of needs. This is, a, in the teachings of the Buddha, the, the cause and effect relationship of giving. The security from dangers, from fire, flood, thieves, kings, meaning the government, and, uh, and unwanted heirs, you know, that might try to take your, um, their, their, un, their inheritance, which really isn't theirs. It says that we can live in abundance, and it, it always feels like that to me, like there's an abundant, um, abundance of faith in my heart to know that something will come from giving. My Auntie Esther used to say, you know, I was raised a Christian, and she would say, cast your bread upon the waters, and a casserole will come back to you. (laughs) So, you know, she knew the cause and effect relationship, and she really saw that in her life. And we were raised in a poor family, and, and I saw that in my life. So the far-reaching benefit and result of the giving of the practice of generosity is a mind and heart of non-greed. The mind and heart that lets go easily. Utejaniya says it's giving away your greed when you practice generosity. You know, it eventually, at the end of our, our life, our physical life, it would be... I, I think of this a lot these days that I would really like to be in a place where the mind can let go very easily and fe- uh, have a feeling of well-being, such well-being inside myself and that all beings, my, my children, my grandchildren, can take care of themselves and I can let go easily. And also maybe letting go of all formations before even the death, physical death of this life just being, let go, let, being able to let go of all conditioned phenomena. That's really important for my own practice. So that's the first pillar of generosity that I wanted to give more time to. The second pillar is the pillar of sila, living in harmony. By the careful consideration and the careful acting out of our speech and behavior, So it's a very deep respect for all beings, including ourselves. It makes not just for an outer harmony, of course, we we come into harmony with others when we have this deep respect for others of non-harming, but we come into harmony in our own hearts. There were certain junctures in my practice, in in my life even before the Dharma, where I realized that I really have to clean up my act a little more in this area. 
you know, to, to just be more, not just more truthful, but more precise in how I talk about the truth. And, and this was taught to all of us by reporting to Upandita. He would ask you to report, to report short and to the point. You know, so you had to take all the, the things that were happening in your practice, the, the most clear um, practice period that you had, and you had to report it in about five minutes. So you had to be not just truthful, but really precise. And so actually in reporting to Upandita, I realized how important it was to kind of hone in on, on this area of truthfulness. And so I, I really learned when I said something like, there were many moments of peacefulness when I would write that down. And I would say, that's not true. There were a few moments of peacefulness. You know, and just that kind of precision in speech really was helpful to me. So we take the precepts and the training for that, and these aren't commandments that we take in the morning. We take them as said, I undertake the training to refrain from, and they each go into killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, the taking of or indulging in substances that will make the mind unclear. So the Buddha gave this training because of great compassion for us, because of seeing the habitual ways that we speak and act in our lives and that we need a training to um, remember to refrain from doing that and then to incline the mind towards some way that we can be more harmonious with others and, of course, ourselves. So we need to remind ourselves of this over and over again. It's said that the proximate causes for careful attention to arise are known as the two guardians of the world. And these two guardians are known in the Pali language as Hiri and Otapa. And uh, these are the underpinnings of the precepts that we take. So I'd like to just use those words because when we translate them into English, it doesn't come out very complete and actually it's very unsatisfying. Uh, factory when it comes out, because the translation in, uh, from Pali into English of Hiri is shame, moral shame, and that doesn't translate too well in our English language. This moral shame, as it's translated into English, is not associated with self-aversion. It's actually an inner sense of our words and our behavior aren't in harmony with those around us. So it's an internal reference. It's rooted in self-respect, this hiri. It induces us to shrink from breaking the precepts when we know that that's why mindfulness is so important to see what we're going to say, to reflect on what we're going to say before we say it because sometimes we notice that what we're going to say is associated with anger or self-righteousness. So we kind of shrink back from saying it. That's a feeling we get inside. We do that out of respecting our personal integrity. This is Hiri. It's out of one's own dignity, respecting one's dignity, that we we say, uh, we shrink back and say, no, we're not going there. 
So it's rooted in this carefulness because we don't want what we say or what we do to get reseated in the karmic mind stream that will, of course, turn up as unpleasant results for us. So the other um, guardian of the world is otapa. It's moral, it's fear, moral dread, moral fear. That has an external orientation. It's a healthy form of fear of wrongdoing because we know when we break the harmony within our communal standards, that's a, an act of wrongdoing. When we lie or we steal or we, uh, we hurt or kill, um, it breaks the, not just societal but communal um, harmony. It's a voice of conscience, conscience that warns us that there are consequences to this. And the nearest consequence to me is that I will be blamed by those I love, that those I respect and love will not... um, It it will be a a feeling of blame that I receive from them. It will be a feeling of kind of a guilty conscience in myself. I will lose the trust and connection of those I revere and love. So this is really important to understand how these two guardians are always protecting us if we pay attention, respect for oneself, respect for others. The Buddha said that this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri and Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, something to depend on, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel towards your aspiration. If these qualities are weak, you will risk losing mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So sila is this beautiful inner place of protection for us, renunciation for us. So both Dana and Sila are sturdy foundations, uh, pillars of the Dhamma from which our lives can grow. And from this place, a very, um, it's a very strong point from which bhavana, bringing forth what has not yet been developed in our minds, can be cultivated. This is a third pillar of the Dhamma. Cultivating the mind through the development of two things, developing concentration and developing wisdom. When we practice uh, in the first area, the development of concentration, just briefly described, a lot of us have practiced concentration by practicing the, uh, the power of the jhanas, the samatha, you hear the, the word samatha, that's the Pali uh, word for concentration. And this is when we place concentration on a chosen object, um, uh, on a limited object or one object. And this prepares the mind in stability, in strength, and in clarity. We bring the mind to this one point over and over again. Now we've been practicing this in our metta practice. We're not practicing metta for jhana, but we're for deep states of concentration, but simply to develop uh, loving kindness. 
but it can be practiced for the development of deep states of jhana and concentration. So when we bring the mind to this over and over again, to this uh, chosen object, because the energy is repeatedly brought to that experience over and over again, in, in metta it's the particular phrase, it can be the, the sight of that person, the connection with that person or persons, it can also be the feeling of metta itself. When that's done over and over again continuously, what happens is there uh, is a force field that's developed and the hindrances cannot enter into that force field. So we feel that the hindrances are very far away. And many of you have been reporting this in one way or another. You get um, different uh, experiences of this, even if they're short-lived. And uh, the experiences seem so far away that we can sit and walk and they can't enter into that field. But when we stop doing that practice, that samatha practice of metta or whatever it is that we're doing, all the hindrances can come back again because that force field is not being developed over and over again. And the hindrances kind of uh, afflict us again. So this happens with repetition, with over and over again going back to the same object. But when we practice um, vipassana, we're using changing objects. So this is very different. We're developing concentration in vipassana, but it's not on limited or one object or a chosen object. It's on objects that are rising spontaneously and naturally. So we open our attention to whatever is appearing at the mind door or the, the sense door whatever is appearing quite naturally. And we don't choose. We just know what's predominant and the mind goes there. And by the continuity of mindfulness on changing objects, still we develop a sense of that kind of concentration which is called momentary concentration because it's on momentary objects. So of course, from the, you know, exalted states that we might feel in samatha practice, we don't feel that in vipassana practice. We feel that it can be quite chaotic, actually, sometimes. It, it feels like we're assailed by the hindrances. So we, in time we learn to turn the attention and, and in a very kind of, um, with, with more and more equanimity, we learn to face all the defilements, all the hindrances, and able to um, receive them, accept them with a mind that's more and more settled, seeing clearly that um, it arises, it changes, every moment passes away. So this is when we're developing insight or wisdom. Vipassana means seeing, uh, seeing seeing clearly in every moment, seeing the true nature of phenomena as it really is. Sometimes mindfulness, um, we think, oh, it's, it's enough to just be mindful. But that's not enough, as Seydal Utejaniya says. Mindfulness alone is not enough. We need to, through mindfulness, develop wisdom. 
So Serda Upandita calls this kind of mindfulness extraordinary mindfulness that pierces through the illusion of, of permanence, of continuity, that pierces through the illusion of self and sees things as they really are. So in this practice, we're opening to the full range of who and what we are as a human being, not just what makes us comfortable, but we have to be willing to open to what's uncomfortable in this practice. Everything that arises is an object of our practice. The practice constantly opens to the changing um, experiences of bodily sensations, perceptions, feelings of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral, intentions. Even the knowing mind is, seeing, is seen as constantly fluxing. The subjective experience that we have when we open to Vipassana is one of chaos. It's one of not calmness uh, all the time. It feels completely uncontrollable. And this opening to the uncontrollable nature of life on this level of seeing is necessary. It's essential in order for one to truly understand profoundly the nature of reality. We experience vulnerability, a lot of vulnerability on this level of feeling just everything arising and passing away and not seeing anything at all solid. It's as if you can just, you know, take your finger and poke, poke through the, the illusion of solidity. So when we're feeling this vulnerability and this uncontrollability, we think practice isn't good. But um, it's really hard to evaluate for ourselves at that time because actually your practice is really wonderful at that time. It's, it's, um, it's a time when the yogi is crying but the teacher is smiling when you go through this period of, of seeing dukkha at this level. Um, this, in fact, is good practice. It's revealing the true nature of reality. So the insights into anicca, or impermanence, being seen on a micro-moment-to-micro-moment level, our experience that there's no permanent anything to be seen in, in any moment at all. And this points to or opens to the deepest understanding of dukkha, that there's this unreliability, this unsatisfactoriness of anything in and of itself or in combination with anything to, be, to give us lasting happiness. That's what the unsatisfactory nature means that nothing in this life is going to give us lasting happiness. Yes, momentary, temporary, but not lasting. Things fade away, things die. Um, So the deep understanding of anatta is also experienced. The impersonal nature of it all becomes very, very clear. And these three things, the understanding of anicca, or the impermanence of life, dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness of life, anatta, or the not-self nature of life, the impermanent, impersonal nature of life, become clear for each of the five aggregates that I, I just mentioned. It becomes clear 
with bodily sensations, with perception, with feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It becomes clear with volitional formations. It becomes clear with knowing itself, even knowing. is usually the last holdout. And one sees that even that arises and passes away with everything else. The Buddha said, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent. Even consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is unsatisfactory. What is impermanent is uncontrollable. What is uncontrollable is not self. So this is the direct knowledge that we receive in vipassana that is known by wisdom in vipassana, the unsatisfactory, uh, impermanent, coreless nature of everything. These are the three characteristics, the three insights, which begin to put us on the path of wisdom and uh, more closely to liberation. The mind knows that it cannot cling to anything anymore. So it doesn't even reach out for anything. Just the reflection of moment-to-moment experience and the wisdom that comes with it of seeing anicca, dukkha, anatta in every moment is utterly clear to the mind. So there's profound equanimity that gets developed towards all experiences. This is called sankara pekka, sankara, all the experiences that could come. No reactivity to anything at the, sense, at the sixth sense doors at all. So during this phase, it's said that one experiences how it is in the mind of an arahant, the true seeing clearly, but no reactivity, just a mind of wisdom that, of course, would know how to respond. So there is this liberating understanding that there's nothing at all to cling to, so the mind doesn't do anything with it. Just gaining, deepening that wisdom over and over and over again. There's a very deep letting go. There's nothing to hold on to because it just sees these formations arising, changing, passing away so quickly. It it, it just becomes, the mind is in that deep equanimity of being able to see that. And the direction is inevitable. It's towards greater and greater freedom. There's There's that purity of the mind, even in equanimity, free from any kind of reactivity, all forms of greed and hatred, free from any delusion or ignorance, seeing things as it really is. And so the mind naturally begins to incline towards the unconditioned, beyond what is known. And it's from that increasing momentum, that strong force, it is said that the mind leaps into the unconditioned. It's not by any intention, by any force by, uh, of one personally. It just is the nature of the mind to do that when all these conditions are put into place. Sometimes the word nibbana, and we hear the word nibbana or nirvana is used synonymously with the unconditioned. This is the goal of the holy life, the Buddha said. It is that ineffable experience. It's beyond conceptual understanding. Beyond our words and description, 
beyond imagination, beyond all formations, even beyond knowing. If there's a, the, the teacher will check, is there knowing? If there's knowing, it's not the unconditioned, because it's beyond that. So these are the words from the Buddha, from the Udana. There is the unborn, the uncreated, the unconditioned, the unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. But since there is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, and unformed, escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, the unailing, Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So this is our path. The sure heart's release, the potential that exists in every single one of us. All ages, all cultures. If you open to this possibility, your life will incline to that direct in that direction. If you don't know what is at the farthest shore, it, you'll just stop short of it. So see further than what your mind see the possibility that your mind can go further than what it knows now or what it can know now. There's a great happiness and peace beyond description. So may it be so for all of us. Let's sit for a moment. 